Well, hey guys. Good to be here. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Good to hear. Uh, I'm John. Uh, I've preached here before. Really, really glad to be here with you guys. And thanks for having my wife and yes, all five of our kids. She deserved that round of applause, by the way. That was great. <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're the ones that are terrorizing your auditorium uh, in between services. So thanks for having us. Um, if you do have a Bible, you can open it up to Psalm chapter 24. And uh, that's where we're going to be today. And I love this psalm. And I don't know about you, but like whenever I'm getting ready for a, a message particularly, but even as I'm like just opening up my Bible and my devotions, when God speaks to me, it's like whatever those words are that he's speaking to me is like the most important thing to know about God in that moment. And like everyone else should know it. Right. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about Psalm 24 today. And hopefully you do at the end of this as well. It is radically life-changing for me, and Lord willing, it will be for you as well. But let me start by showing you this picture. I'll throw up a picture here. <clears throat> when you see that picture, um, if you're younger and you don't like history, which may be many young people here, uh, you might look at that picture and just see it for what it is, right? There's a lot of people surrounding a car, Whoever's in the car is probably important because it seems like everyone's looking at him. They're smiling, right? They're all very happy. Some sort of parade. He's, he's important because he's got an entourage with him. And that's all you see. But if you're a little bit older and if you know anything about history, then you probably have a different thought going through your head, don't you? When you see that picture, you probably have something, you know, even stirring up in your stomach right now, because you know that just minutes after this picture was taken, President John F. Kennedy would be shot in the back of the head on national television for the whole world to see. And it changed the entire course of history, right? It was uh, in the 60s, that was that generation's 9-11. It changed a lot of things. And it caused, it shocked the world and it caused all of them to start asking the question, why? Why in the world did that happen? Why? Well, in the context of the psalm that we're going to read, Psalm 24, David is the author, King David. And David is writing this in the context of 2 Samuel 6. This is a, if you grew up around the church, you may recognize this this story, but maybe not so familiar to most of you. It's a story of when David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the tabernacle. It was at somebody's house, and he wanted to bring it back into the tabernacle where it, where it should have been. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, if you didn't, haven't grown up around Christianity, it's the place that resembled the, the presence of God dwelling on earth. It's the place where the living God was literally dwelling on earth with his people, the Israelites. And so it was a big deal, really big deal. And so David went and he, and he actually took 30,000 people with him, 30,000 people with him to go get this ark and to bring it back into the tabernacle. And along the way, they were singing, they were dancing, they were playing music. It was just one giant big party, right? And they were having a great time. But the only thing wrong here that David did is he... He didn't put the Ark of the Covenant in these poles that were supposed to be carried. He actually put it on a cart. And he pulled this cart 
uh, with some oxen. And as the, again, picture this, 30,000 people all dancing, singing, playing all these instruments, and the cart's being pulled by these big ox, and one of the ox stumbles, and the ark starts to wobble back and forth, right? We've all seen this happen in our own lives. It starts to wobble. The presence of God is wobbling, and it's about to fall on the ground. So there's a man named Uzzah who is standing right by, and he does what would have been natural for most, if not all of us in here. He reaches out to steady the ark, and he touches it. And what happens to him? Anybody know? He dies. Now just picture the scene. 30,000 people all watching and celebrating this, what was a good thing, right? They're bringing the ark back to where it belongs, and Uzzah dies because he touched the presence of God. It's, it's not one of those stories that you often hear. I don't think I've ever heard it in children's church, right? <laughs> no one tells that one. You don't see that one put up on the flannel graph. What's Uzzah doing on the ground right there? Oh, don't ask a question. <laughs> That's what kids would do, right? If you, if, you, if you told this story in Sunday school, you'd get little Jimmy in the back to raise his hand and ask the question that's going through all of your heads, maybe even now. He'd go, why? Why did God do that? Why did Uzzah die because he touched the ark? Wasn't he doing kind of a good thing? And actually, this story, it's not just a one-off story in the Bible. It's actually a theme throughout all of Scripture that when somebody encounters the living God's presence in their unholy state, they, they die. Remember, remember the high priest Aaron, the first high priest that the Israelites ever had? When the tabernacle was first built, his two sons were also in line to become the next high priest, most likely, and, and they went into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they went in in an unholy way, lighting this strange fire, the scripture says. Same thing happened. God smoked them. Right there, they died. When you come into the presence of God in an unholy way, you, you die. And so the question going through our heads should be, well, well Why? And here's my, it's not so profound, but I think it is intuitive answer, simple answer to the question why. If there really is a holy God that exists, then he must be unapproachable by unholy people. He must be. If he is truly holy, then imperfection cannot come into his presence. Okay, the glory of God is a lot like the sun in the sky. Right? We are all very thankful for the sun, are we not? Brings you warmth, brings you light, ultimately it brings you life, but at a distance. Because if you were to try to get in your own spaceship, or however you would do it, fly into the midst of the sun, what would happen to you? You would die. Your deadly, your sin, your sin against the holy God makes approaching his holiness deadly. Very deadly. And that's what we see with, with Uzzah and with Aaron's sons. And, and so that makes logical sense to us, right? If God really is holy, 
then he cannot be approached if we are sinful. But what if I were to tell you, this is the amazing story of the Bible. It's just amazing. And wrap your mind around this. What if I were to tell you that you were actually made to live in that presence? You were actually made to live in that horrifyingly glorious presence of God. It's true, you were. You were made to live in that presence. And in fact, humanity once did. And God's mission for humanity is to, is to help them find their way back into his presence and live there. And so that's what, that's what this message is about. It's, it's about helping us find our way back into God's presence. And um, I got 30 minutes to do it, so let's, let's buckle up and let's look at Psalm 24 and, and see what we can get out of this, because this is what David's trying to communicate. Psalm 24, this, like I said, this is a Psalm of David. And here are the first two verses. David says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, you go, that is a funny way of talking, David. What are you talking about? You, God has established the earth and the people on the seas and the rivers. Like, I know this is poetry, but come on, I'm not that poetic, David. Just talk you know, like a human would. What are you saying here? But really, when we read, and, and actually, whenever you read your Bible, you should be looking for these types of phrases to trigger something off in your mind. And I like to call them flashbacks or foreshadowings. When you read your Bible, there's all sorts of flashbacks or foreshadowings that's supposed to trigger your mind to go, wait a minute, the author is trying to get me to remember something or look for something to come in the future. And when David's writing this, he's, he's, he's writing a flashback or hyperlink, if you will. I have, I have uh, uh, a, an email that I get every morning. It's called the 1440 Digest. It's this uh, news email. It just keeps me up to date, right? And there's just like these short paragraph things that just tell me these are what's going on in the world. And when I come across them, in each, in each paragraph, it has like these blue words, the rest of them are black, and then you get a couple that are blue, and it's like uh, video here, and like the word video here is in blue. You ever seen this? You know what I'm talking about? What happens when you click that? It hyperlinks you to a whole other page or a video or a, a picture or something like that. Get that in your mind as you're reading scripture. So, so when David's writing and he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He, he, he wants you to click on it and boom, it's going to take you right back to the beginning of the Bible. The first three chapters of the Bible in particular. And here's the first two verses of the Bible that kind of give you an insight into, oh, oh, this is what he was referencing. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 say, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So while pondering the death of Uzziah and why he had to die, David seems to think that his answer to the question why is going to be found in the opening pages of the Bible. 
He seems to think, okay, I'm meditating. I'm asking myself, why, God? Why did you kill this man for touching the ark? And this seemed like something he should have done. Why? He seems to think that meditating on the first three chapters of Genesis are going to be where he finds his answers. And, and if you're unfamiliar with the beginning of the story of the Bible... The Bible opens by talking about how God created the earth and these little, these little images of himself called humans, right? They're little, they're little God images, Adam and Eve. And he tells Adam and Eve, or he, first he puts them in this garden, in this land of Eden. And, and unlike Uzzah and unlike Aaron's sons, Adam and Eve, they could live or they were living in the holy presence of God and flourishing without dying. They were able to do this. Humanity actually lived with God at one point and they didn't die. And God commanded them and said, hey, subdue the land, which is a very aggressive word. He, he didn't just say like, hey, just hang out. He says, no, you go subdue that land, rule it. And go spread, multiply all these other little God images all over the world to spread my glory all over the world. That's, that was God's entire mission. His mission for, for the universe is to spread his glory through all of these little humans worshiping their creator like they ought to. And as you, you may remember the story, it didn't last long. Right? The Bible is not a moral handbook for you to look at the examples of humans and go, oh, I should imitate them. No, you get three pages in and you go, you want a picture of humanity? Adam and Eve. They failed. They failed. And so they decided, Adam and Eve that is, to, to not trust in the Lord with all their heart, as the proverb says, but rather to lean on their own understanding. And they chose to disobey God's one command. Don't take the fruit. They thought, ah, I'd be better to be wise in my own eyes. I got a better angle on the truth here. I'm going to take the fruit and I'm going to do what's wise in my own eyes. They disobeyed God. They sinned in the perfect relationship that humanity had with their creator was, was broken. And as a result, they were cast out of the garden. They were exiled out of the presence of God and they were left longing to get back in. Now, David, as he's, as he's meditating on this, he, he has this picture in mind and he knows, David knows that the only place to find true life is going to be in the presence of God. But yet he finds himself exiled out of that presence, which is why I love the picture you're looking at. I love that picture of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve getting cast out, the two cherubim guarding the gate with the flaming weird lightsaber sword looking thing, just flashing back and forth. Because what is that saying? That's saying inside this gate is life. Inside this gate is where the living God is, and this is what you were made for, but right now you find yourself exiled. And if you try and get back into the garden on your own standards, on your, in your own works, in your own way, it's not going to go well with you. In fact, some of you in this room, that's, that's what you're going to find out the day that you die. You're, you're going to think that your good works are going to somehow get you past that gate. And, and the living God is going to look at you and say, the first thing you had to recognize was that 
You can't do it on your own. That's right. That's right. Something supernatural has to happen for you. And so David's contemplating this question in his mind. And so, so he asks the question. He preempts the question that, that all of us should, should ask when we contemplate, when you read the first three chapters of Genesis, this is what should be going through your mind is the question of verse 3 in Psalm 24. David says, well, then who? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord was a reference to Zion or, or Jerusalem. Again, another visual representation of where the presence of God dwelt on earth with his people, Israel. And the holy place was the holy of holies inside the tabernacle and what would become the temple with David's son. The place where the Ark of the Covenant would be, the, the, the place where the presence of God is. So essentially, David is asking, as he's meditating on Genesis, he's going, who can enter into Eden without being killed by the cherubim? Who can, who can enter into the presence of God without them dying like Uzzah or Aaron's sons? How can this happen? And by the way, this is the great human question. Right? This is the question that goes on, whether you realize it or not, in every single one of your hearts. Every single one of you, you know that you have sinned against your creator. I don't need to tell you what conviction feels like. You know what conviction feels like when the door is closed or when you're laying on your pillow at nighttime and you're thinking back through your day. You know that you have sinned against the holy creator. And you know that as you look around at, at the world that you're living in, it's broken. And, and you have this thought as you're looking at all of the atrocities and, and the sicknesses and the, and, the, and, the, and the sin. And you go, man, it's almost as if, it's almost as if the world's not how it ought to be. And, and it's almost like you instinctively understand and realize that you were made for perfection because you were there's something deep inside your heart that longs to be with and living in perfection it's because you were made to be in a relationship with your creator and so David has this question in mind he's asking who who can stand in the holy place I know this is where I'm going to find life but who and then he gives us an answer in verse 4. And he says, he who has clean hands, this is who. That is the person who is holy in their actions. He who has a pure heart, that is someone who is holy in their inward intentions. The one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I don't know about you, but when I read David's answer to the question who, it's a little depressing, right? He's saying, hey, hey guys, just if you want to be in the presence of perfection, and I know that's your heart cry, I got the answer. All you got to do, just be perfect. Just be perfect. Every single action that you take, just don't sin. Every single inward intention that goes through your heart, every single thought that crosses your mind, you may never say it, you may never act on it, just, just have those be perfect. 
and be holy. And if you do that, then you can enter into perfection. Then you can enter into the presence of God without dying. And Jesus, by the way, in the New Testament, doesn't say anything different. In Matthew 5, 48, he says, you must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. That is the great conundrum in humanity is that God is holy and we are not. Because you know, just taking a second of self-reflection, none of you in this room meet that standard, right? Oh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, you want to find the only people in the world who call themselves perfect? Go to the insane asylum. They're the only ones that'll do it. Because all of us who have our minds will understand and know we are not perfect. And we cannot enter into the presence of God. But remember, David, he's thinking about what? What book? Genesis. He's meditating on the opening story of God's word. And, and, and in verse 7 through 10 in Psalm 24, he's got a king in mind. We read it a couple times already. We haven't read it yet, but you have read it. He's got a king in mind. David has, David has a man, a human in mind who will actually fit the description of what we just described. Someone who really did have clean hands and a pure heart. He's got this human king, Messiah figure in mind. And where do you see that in Genesis? Well, Genesis 3.15. The very first prophecy in all of the Bible, this bizarre verse about a snake crusher, where you have God, after Adam and Eve had chose, chosen to do what is right in their own eyes, they took the fruit, God finds them out, and he is talking to the serpent who had deceived him, and he's sending his curses upon the serpent. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, here's this human that David seems to think is a king, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now what this is saying Lakeside Fellowship, what this is saying is that there will be a day, there will be a day when there really would be a human king who would perfectly live out the words that David is writing. He would be perfect in all that he does. Every single action he took physically would be perfect. He would have clean hands. All of his intentions, every thought that he ever had, every intention coming out of his heart would be perfect. He would have a pure heart. And the curse of sin would strike this perfect king man on his heel by killing him. But then he would crush the sin, the head of sin and defeat the curse of death by rising from the dead. That's what that verse is talking about. 
And David, as he's reflecting on this Messiah king, he's also reflecting on how after his, after defeating his enemy, this, this sin-crushing warrior would, would be able to march up the hill of the Lord into the presence of God, standing in his holy, holy place, standing in the presence of God, able to live there, and, and all of the angels would be singing the verses 7 and 10 right here in this text, which say, lift up your heads as he's going up the hill into the glorious presence of God, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is the king who is currently in the presence of the Father, working as your high priest, interceding for you, never getting tired of taking your sins to the Father and forgiving them, never getting tired of speaking for you. This is your king. He's in the presence of God. He has ascended and he's working on your behalf. If you haven't guessed it yet, Genesis 3 and Psalm 24, they're all about Jesus. That's who they're talking about. This is who David has in mind. It's, it's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory. Jesus is the king of glory who victoriously ascended into the presence of God after he lived his perfect life. Pure actions, pure intentions, and then he went to a cross to die, to absorb the sins of the world. And then he would rise from the dead three days later and then ascend back up into the presence of God as your glorious and victorious king. He is the one who can stand in God's holy place. He is the answer to David's question, who can stand? But here's one thing that I really love about this 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 uh, psalm. It's a multifaceted image. So it's like a diamond. When you turn a diamond, right, you get more than one image there. This is like the psalm. I don't know what that word is. I'm not very intelligent, but it's like an image, right? So you look at Psalm 24 and you ask the question, who can stand in the holy presence of God? And you see it's, it's Jesus. Jesus can stand in the holy presence of God. But then when you turn the image, you get a second image. You see a second image there, and the second image is that because of what Jesus did, you can stand in the holy presence of God. You get to stand there. I love this story because it, it pictures it so well. In Isaiah 6, you get the prophet Isaiah. He has a vision uh, or a dream, and he's, he, he's taken up into the presence of God. And it's quite a scene. He is, God's presence is there. He's seated on his throne. There's smoke filling the whole place. You got music happening. You got these six-winged seraphim angels flying around him. His place is wild. And Isaiah, he immediately recognizes that he is not supposed to be there. 
because he recognizes himself as unholy. He, he says, I live amongst the people of unclean lips and I am a person of unclean lips. If I stay any longer, I am going to die. He knows the story of Adam and Eve. He knows the story of Aaron's sons. He knows the story of Uzzah and he's going, oh, if I'm, I'm going to die here. I am not supposed to be here. But then you get this very interesting couple of verses Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 6, 6 and 7. He says, but then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs of the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, as much as you love the Bible, that is weird, right? I mean, that is a bizarre story. But I don't want you to miss the amazing, glorious picture here. Isaiah is unholy, just like you and I. And he finds himself in the presence of holiness. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't try and make himself holy by cleaning himself up or presenting himself in a holy manner. No, what you, what you see is God's holiness is reaching out and being transferred over to Isaiah through this holy coal. It's touching him. It's washing away his sins so that he might be able to stand in the presence of holiness. That's quite a picture. Now keep that picture in your mind and fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, when he was on earth, and people would come into contact with him, they would be utterly transformed, physically and spiritually, to the point that as he walked around, he would say things that would end up getting him killed by the priests and the Pharisees. He would walk around and say, hey, paralyzed man, stand up, and oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are you know another word for your sins are forgiven? Your sins are atoned for. What is he saying? Do you see Jesus, when he was on earth, was being that holy coal that you see in Isaiah 6. And in fact, the gospel writer John, in his gospel, in the first chapter, he would write in John 1.14 that the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt literally means to set up a tent or to set up a tabernacle, to set up God's holy place. Isn't that amazing? John is saying that Jesus, when he came down to earth, was a walking holy place. He was a walking tabernacle going around and saying, I have the ability just like this holy coal that you see in Isaiah 6. I have the ability to reach out, to touch you, to completely wash away your sin, and to make you holy so that you can stand in the presence of perfection one day, just like you were designed to. If you were to believe in him, do you believe in him? Has that happened to you? Just think about this. Your creator is offering you a life where you can have every single sin you have ever committed 
washed away. With that image in mind, reread verses 3 through 5 in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. If you have placed your trust in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, then Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' blessings, Jesus' clean hands, Jesus' pure heart is being offered to you. He's offering to touch you with his holiness through your faith. If you believe in what he has done for you, to wash you clean of all of your sin, and let you stand up in the holy place of God. That same prophet Isaiah would say later on in Isaiah 61.10 that the picture here is Jesus essentially takes his perfect life and if you trust in what he did for you on the cross and his resurrection, he actually wraps his righteousness around you like this protective coat so that you can actually enter into this horrifyingly glorious presence without dying. And you're able to live there so, of course, what we want to ask you is, have you done that? We're not assuming that every one of you have. Jesus' death and resurrection has reopened the gates of Eden for you to be able to walk in and to be with your creator. But then here's this last picture. You get the first picture of Jesus. Who can stand in the holy place? It's Jesus. You tilt it. Who can stand in the holy place? It's you. If you have faith in Jesus and then you twist it another way and you get another image and it's that the church is the holy place of God on earth today. And this is actually what he's using to accomplish his mission of of spreading his glory, filling the world with his glory, as it says all over scripture. And so you get this story in 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 Exodus, where Moses, he's going up to get the Ten Commandments. And you know the story, most of you here. And he goes up this mountain, Mount Sinai. And you remember at the top of the mountain is the, this cloud, it's thundering, there's lightning. All the Israelites are like, I ain't going up there. Yeah, right, that looks like death to me. I'm not doing it. But what is that cloud? It's the presence of God. So again, another picture of Moses going into the presence of God, spending time with God. But then what happened to Moses when he came down off the mountain? Do you remember? His face started to radiate the glory of God. And I want to help you see that if you're a Christian, like Moses... You have ascended the holy hill. You have entered into the holy presence of God. You have met God face to face that way. And so if that's true of your life, then just like Moses, when you come down off that hill into your world everyday life, the world should be able to see that you have met your creator. The, the glory of your creator should be radiating off of everything that you do. Uh, off of every conversation that you have. 
Every interaction that you have with your boss, your boss should be able to say, that man, that woman has been with God. Every, every neighbor that's annoying should be able to look at you and go, you know what? They're different. They're radiating something glorious. I may not like it, or I may be really attracted to it. I'm not quite sure yet. The people in your life, the interactions that you have, they should be able to tell, just like Moses coming down off the mountain, that you have been with God. In a sense, you are a walking holy place if you've been saved. You are a walking temple. Paul calls you a temple in 1 Corinthians. But now, here's the, here's the big picture. This is why we plant churches in the Engage Network. You get all these little mini temples, these little individual Christians. But then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you know that you yourselves, that's plural, He's talking about these individual little temples coming together to make up this place called the church. That's what Lakeside Fellowship is. It's a church. And he says, do you not know that you yourselves, the church, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The presence of God dwells right here in the same way that it dwelt in the ark that Uzzah touched. Do you feel that? Do you sense that whenever you come to church? This is where God is. And, and God's plan to fill the world with his glory is for these individual walking holy places called Christians to come together and to start these churches that can be put in these other dark, spiritually dark areas so that the glory of God might shine just like the face of Moses into these dark areas and the whole world might know who their creator is. In Lakeside Fellowship, that, that is why we plant churches. And you, you have already played a role in God's mission, and you get to continue to play a role in God's mission by starting this next church, by starting this next Garden of Eden, if, if you will, on the north side of Des Moines, a place where, where we are going to be passionate about helping the north side of Des Moines find and follow their creator. Find because a lot of them don't know who he is. They don't, they don't see him as holy. They think that they can get into his presence, into the garden on their own standards, in their own ways. And we want to help them find. You can't do it that way. You have to go through Jesus. You have to go through Jesus. And then when they're in that garden, when they're in that church, that, that, that temple, that whatever you want to call it, we're going to help them follow their creator until the day that they go meet their creator. We've been asking ourselves the questions, what, what would happen if a church really loved their neighbors like Jesus? I really believe that if a church really loved their neighbors like Jesus, that entire communities would change. Schools, businesses, neighborhoods. What would happen if a church really didn't care about its status, but loved the neglected like Jesus did. I believe that that church would be a picture of the heart of God, a place where the rich and the poor would be, the businessman and the homeless man, the stay-at-home mom and the single mom working two jobs. What, 
what would happen if a church really loved the spiritual nomad? What if a church really gave people a place where they felt at home to search for God? I believe that church would be an answer to the spiritual cry of our culture today. Could joining Eden Church be a stepping stone to taking a bigger risk with your faith? Is that true for some of you in here? God may be calling some of you right now to take a step of faith. And for some of you, it it may simply and, and most importantly be coming into a relationship with your creator for the first time through Jesus. And some of you need to take that first step today. And we're encouraging you to do that. That is what you need most. But then for some of you, if you're a Christian, it may be joining what God is already doing on the north side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are that. You are a heavenly Father, Lord. And your kingdom is being set up on earth. And Lord, we get the privilege of being a part of it. You've chosen to use sinful and weak humans, Lord, and we just thank you for your grace. Every day we thank you for your blessings that you've poured out onto us for no reason other than you are a good God. Lord, I pray that if there's an individual in this room who does not know you, has not come to know and believe and trust in their creator's way for them to get to know him through Jesus, Lord, I pray that that today they would acknowledge their sin and they would acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to you and that you would save them. Lord, let your will be done. We love you in your son's name. Amen.